You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, everyone, welcome back uh, to Faith and Other Oddities. Once again, I'm here with Emily, and we're uh, going to be wrapping up this week the last little bit of Judges chapter two. Um, when I mentioned we were running on time, close time last time, you said we had what eight pages, <laughs> eight more pages in left <laughs> on that. Uh, so uh, we left it kind of what seemed like kind of an awkward space. So why don't you go ahead and recap us on that and where we were? Yeah, um, this is basically, chapter two is the guide on how to read the rest of the book. And um, this last little bit here, it it actually kind of works out because even though it's the end of chapter two, it it flows into chapter three. And it's an odd place for the chapter break, really. Yeah, I mean, it does look like the chapter break should actually be where chapter three three verse six right after verse six and and that really is the conclusion uh three six is the the last of the introductory material of the book of judges and because the book of judges you get your three parts you have your um introduction which is one Mm -hmm. three three six and then three six through to almost the half point of the of the book which uh that parts the cycle of judges and that we're we're going to be talking about you know, Samson and Deborah and Gideon, the people that we're familiar with. And then there's the last half of the book, which is kind of epilogue um, that we don't hear about in church very often. Mm-hmm. And so this is um, this whole section here that we've been going over really is just the buildup. And it is the instructions on how to read. And this is God saying, hey, this is what this is where you let me down on your part of the covenant. Here's the consequences of it. And I'm going to make provision to provide for you through these people that we're going to call judges. And they're going to be the ones who, who remind you that I still love you and that I'm still providing a way out, even in the midst of all of this crisis and calamity that you brought on yourself by mm-hmm. failing to drive out the Canaanites. And he's reminding them, too, that the reason they're in this mess is because he offers help and they keep refusing it. And, and I love in this, in this passage here, it's, he basically says, you know, they wouldn't turn loose of their stubborn ways. Right. You know, he, he's making it very clear. This is on you. This is not me. I didn't fail you. And he also talks about how he sells the people to other kings and other gods. He, he, he's the one doing it, even though it looks like, these other kings and outside forces have come in to oppress the people. They didn't get to do it just because they thought it was a good idea. It's because God allowed it to happen. Yeah. Well, and and the and the selling language is to basically kind of put this idea that they're going to be ruled and overrun by these people, kind of like a a, a slavery type language. Well, I, I don't think there's actually divine currency changing hand between right. Yahweh and other gods. Well, it's a good reminder, too, that, you know, if you go back to the Divine Council worldview in Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, that the people receive their inheritance of the land for obedience. Mm-hmm. But God receives his inheritance when the people are obedience, uh, obedient. 
um, it, it's a minor distinction, but the two concepts play off each other and they, they work together. And so the, the selling, what it tells us is God has every right to do this. Right. Because these people are his. Whereas the Canaanites, they belong to the other gods and the, the lesser Elohim, the sons of God, as, as it's put in Deuteronomy. So um, as we're wrapping this up, he gets very specific about, you know, what they've done. And I'm trying to find the precise spot um, in this because he talks about the judges and how they become more and more corrupt. Mm-hmm. But mm, I know it's in here because I made a note. We just read it last week. Yeah. Um, it is. Saved them from their plundering. Mm-hmm. Going after other gods. Verse 19, that's what I wanted to say, that they were going after other gods. Uh, another translation is that they were whoring after other gods. Yeah. And, and this, this is does two things number one this is not some metaphor this is a literal event that's going on we talked about last week how Baal and Asheroth these were fertility gods Mm -hmm. that they uh the the way they were worshipped were through these sexual rituals and so this is not some kind of um trumped up you know language to make it sound more abhorrent than what it was it this is a literal fact but this also reminds us this is a prophetic book and yeah. I will keep on coming back to that because we need to remember this is a prophetic book and you know Hosea, Jeremiah, Ezekiel they all employ these same themes of marriage and fidelity mm-hmm. infidelity we see this as a common thread throughout prof- prophetic work uh, this is also the same language used in Exodus 34 verses 11 through 16 um, where this is, um, this is right after the events of the of the golden calf, and you got to remember the golden the golden calf event at Sinai that happens less than forty days after the people have committed to follow God, where they have said yes, we want to be a part of this covenant community. They chose God, they declared their loyalty, and less than forty days later, they are um, they're making this golden calf, and. In this passage in Exodus 34, it's, like I said, it's the same language. And he's reminding him, don't make covenants with the people of, of Israel, uh, mm-hmm. of Canaan. Right. Because you're in a covenant with me. You know, just like you can't marry, you know, more than one spouse, you can't marry another God. And right. so this is why the whoring language is so uh, appropriate here. And we only find this, this idea of... Um, in Judges, it says that they turned aside quickly or that they were soon turned mm-hmm. aside, depending on which translation you're reading. The The Hebrew there is only used in the golden calf incident. Right. So when we think about God's response to the golden calf, I mean, it's, it's brutal. It, it is massively. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the most violent acts to happen with one tribe of Israel against another. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 32 verse 27, kill his brother, his companion, and his neighbor. I mean, this is what, when Moses comes down, he's like, who's, who's with me? Who's for the Lord? And he tells them to pick up their swords. Go kill your brother, your neighbor, your companion. And they do. And th- th- was from the tribe of Levi. And they became the priest. And um, which, an interesting little point there. Yeah, I was going to say, we talked about that on the special. Um, yeah. Go ahead and, and talk about that here. Because 
when the tribe of Levi were selected to be the spiritual um, caretakers of the nation, uh, they they lost out on the inheritance and they kind of lived this life in of what might be considered a type of exile because they weren't a part of the functioning community. They weren't part of the, the harvesting and the planting and the raising of flocks and sheep because they didn't have land. Right. And so one of the things you have to remember is when you kill your brother, you live in exile. Mm-hmm. And so the Levites lived in this form of exile because they had killed their brother, but they had done it not out of selfish motivation, but out of zealousness for God, mm-hmm. that you would keep worship of God pure. And I, I think we still can see parallels of that, maybe not as graphically, but people who have pursued God wholeheartedly, who, who live on the fringes of society, they, they really don't have that place to fit. And you know, we can look at like Mother Teresa. I mean, wor- working in a leper colony, she's she's not part of her culture, her mm. her primary culture. And um, we can look at other missionaries. I mean, she's, she's just the first one that that we see. Uh, I think everybody immediately she pops to mind. But that's when we talk about uh, even Christian leadership. I, how many times do we have pastors who they don't have close friends? Mm-hmm. They don't right. have anybody that they can really consider to be a confidant or a companion because they put the call ahead of those personal relationships. And I think that this too, we see it reflected in Jesus when he's talking about, you know, unless you hate your mother and your father and, and not do you, should you really hate your mother right. and father? But he's saying that the, that the love of, of Christ and, and your pursuit should, should be so overwhelming that whatever you would consider love compared to that would not be near as good. Right. And Excuse me. This, this is where the people of, of Israel are really falling down on the job right now. They, they want the expedience of those Canaanite gods. And so this is not out of character with God's, with the way God has dealt with issues in the past mm-hmm. that, you know, there, there's repercussions for disobedience. Now, in verse 18 here, he, he says he's going to raise up a judge um, because he's moved by pity, by their groaning, uh, because, uh, because, of, uh, of who afflict, because, the, because of who afflicted and oppressed them. So he, he's moved by pity. That, that word there, uh, racham, uh, sorry, nakham, uh, we see this word with, uh, with the flood. Uh-huh. When God changes his mind, mm-hmm. when God repents. Yeah. And this is you know, a huge theological uh, quagmire to get, to get bowed down <laughs> in because, you know, people, oh, well, God's never changing. Well, can God be consistent in character and still change his mind? Well, and, and also if you think of, of the word repent, meaning more of to return as mm-hmm. opposed to change right i mean you you think well well god's decided that i'm going to return to the original we're going to get everyone back on the original course right more than anything and so i think that also kind of clarifies that a little bit but i of course we can we can debate and discuss that (laughs) uh all we want but i think i think that really we're just going to wind up you know splitting hairs and chasing rabbits well i think block has a really good response to this too uh, and this is a, a quote from uh, the commentary that I referenced on the first episode in our Judges series. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, the present text is sufficiently ambiguous to leave open the possibility that Yenakam 
should be uh, Nechem, sorry, we'll get the right vowel sound in there. Nechem should be rendered, he changed his mind. About certain things, Yahweh will not change his mind, see Jeremiah 4.28. But mm-hmm. more importantly, his character is immutable, consistent, and absolutely trustworthy. Numbers 23.19, 1 Samuel 15.29. But this does not mean that his mind is fossilized or that he is incapable of changing the way in which he deals with human beings. And here in Judges, this is a good thing when God changes his mind because it mm-hmm. means he's being responsive. Can you have a relationship with a God who cannot be influenced and who cannot be swayed and moved on behalf of the other person in the relationship? Well, and you, you said, you know, God, the God changing his mind is good because he comes back to redeem. He comes back mm-hmm. to save people. But in a way, it's also it's good that he can change his mind so that he's not just sitting around condoning sinful behavior. Right. I mean, so it's yeah. I mean, but yeah, if you if you take the idea that, oh, God's not going to change his mind or say that God's unchanging to say, again, like, what was it? How was it? Uh, was it Block you said you just read mm-hmm. from? Said yeah. it's, it's not fossilized. Right. I mean, I, I think that is kind of, it's overreading the idiom. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, and that's why, you know, and I, I don't know if I've said this on the show before. I've said this <laughs> to you. I was like, you know, if, if, we, if we take our theology from people who insist that every phrase has to be 100% literal without any mm-hmm. room for, uh, you know, this, poetic type of, of feel to things, you, I don't think you can trust them with theology because you can't trust them with, with literary devices, <laughs> you know, and, and I think one of those is more important, right. and, and, but, but you can't get to the, to the theology without the literary device. Well, and this is the thing, changing your mind doesn't mean you're unstable. Changing your mind might mean that the other person in the relationship has changed what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And now you need to be able to respond to that if you're going to have integrity. Because if you're a God who says, I'm going to respond and care for people who are in need, who are oppressed, who are afflicted, once that person falls into that category, now you have to respond to them if you're going to remain integrity with, you know, maintain your integrity. Yeah. And yeah. If, if he failed to respond to, you know, their groanings, as it's put, in one verse, then now he's not being consistent with his character. Because what we know from Exodus, mm-hmm. Exodus 2, God heard the groanings of Israel and he responds, this is who God is. And so the changing of the mind is actually very consistent with his character. And it, it's nothing to be afraid of. And when compare that to the Baals and the Asheroth, now we have, these gods don't respond to their, their mm-hmm. people. Matter of fact, the Psalms that were written by David um, during that same time period, we have psalms written in Egypt, and we have some Canaanite and some Mesopotamian psalms. They're all about how, number one, you can't know what God's will is, right. their God, what his will is, uh, and how he doesn't respond. Or if they respond, it's very capricious. It, there's, no, there's no understanding. There's no method to it. it. It's all about that God's whims. Right. This, what we're seeing in the Bible, is a consistent response to certain situations, and it is a revelation of his character. And, you know, basically, it's saying our God's not some kind of system that can be worked, and he's not a fortune-telling machine. Right. You know, you know I've got this image of Big, you know, going to that. <laughs> like yeah. a, so he, he raises up these judges, and the judges... Being raised up is an act of compassion and mercy in and of itself. Mm-hmm. He, 
he's saying that there's one more chance. I'm going to give you one more chance. Here's one more little bit of hope. I'm that God is holding out for humanity. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, the fact that God is holding out hope for humanity and saying, I'm going to give you one more chance. I'm going to give you one more time that you can almost get it right, that you might do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. It, Just do one thing. <laughs> well, and I think anybody who's ever been in a relationship with someone who is struggling with, you know, addiction or just uh, negative behaviors. You know, you can look at a child, a teenager, how many times I've got, I've raised two teenagers and, and you're like, you will never do this again. And then as a parent, I offer that one more, one more chance, one more chance, get it right. Cause this is what you do when you love someone. Sure. And when you see the best. So we also find out when the judge dies that not only do they revert, they they're worse. The the people revert. The people yeah, the people revert and they're worse than what the, the previous generation was. And and that's gonna be the ongoing cycle. I mean, not only do we have cycles and judges, we have this downward spiral until, you know, by the time we get to Samson, he barely qualifies as anything anybody should look up to. Right, right. And he, well, and I, I mean, I, I would never think of him as a role model. I mean, not anymore as an adult. I, and we, we mentioned this before that you know we, we were told that growing up. Oh, you don't need to be like Samson. You need to <laughs> right. Be mighty, you know, filled with God's spirit. And you're like, uh, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, you know, we need to be filled with the spirit, but we also we need to make sure we're. Not bringing a lot of other, Sam, uh, the rest of Samson's baggage along. Well, but we don't tell this, that part of the story in Sunday school. Uh, you know. Well, we do, but it's cleaned up a little bit. In unrecognizable Somehow. language, yeah. <laughs> like, like, who is the person who sat down with the, what was the, this, the quarterly that we got? The, yeah. The, well, I can't think of what the title of it was, but it had the, the lessons in there. And can you imagine getting that assignment? It's like, here. <laughs> Write this, but for kids. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's a reason. Yeah. Well, and even Gideon has got severe problems. You know, mighty man of valor. You, you, t- you read his story and actually read it without putting that filter on until God introduces it into the story. He's not a mighty man of valor. And so we're actually going to, when we get to Deborah, we're going to talk about um, how She's actually one of the few that the Bible doesn't critique, and there's not a whole lot to to say negative about her. And well, you don't have to, right? I mean, because she's, a she's woman. already a woman, yeah. So you know, the, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll get to have fun with that we're, one. <laughs> we're making fun of people who make fun of women. Just so you know, we're not being sexist, here. right? So anti-sexist. <laughs> so, bottom line with this passage here in Gen- in Judges uh, to the end of it. God's basically saying, I'm going to give you what you want. You, you didn't drive out the Canaanites. You get to have them. Um, and, you know, because you did. You kept them as slaves. Mm-hmm. So they're yours now. But the problem is the, the Canaanites are going to wind up turning the, the, the Israelites into slaves. Mm-hmm. And, but the thing is, if one person, if one person can, can act and behave and do the things that God has called them to do, then they have the ability to change the, the future of the nation right? or the cir- present circumstances of the nation anyway. And that's ultimately what the judges do. They, they're that one person who they're willing to be obedient, uh, at least to some extent. Right. And so, but even by the end of it, man, finding someone to do the bare minimum 
Yeah. It's going to be a challenge. Yeah, I don't know if I got, any, <laughs> got enough in here for any more of these judge folks. <laughs> well, and the thing is with the judges, what most people don't realize, even though they're fighting, and this goes even for Deborah's battles, um, they never fight for territory. They never expand their dominion. They, they throw off oppressors, but they don't get any more um, freedom from the Canaanites themselves during the, the, the period of the judges. Right. And now the, the problem with this is when we tell the story, we act like when the judges won, it, it's that, you know, the whole nation was cleaned up and everything was wonderful. And, and then it just slowly, like you said last week, it slowly, somebody comes in and oppresses them again. And we, we leave out the part that this, this is a function of God's, uh, of God's judgment. And so that's, and that's a scary thing because I don't think we like to talk about God's judgment in today's, um, in today's church. No, we don't. And yeah, well, well why we want to talk about that. But th- this is, it's important because this judgment thing is it, changing because we're starting to move away from the idea that the, the behaviors and the faith of a previous generation are going to affect the next generation right now now we're starting to you remember back in genesis we went from one son and then it, it included 12 sons and we started to see that shift to, from exclusivity to inclusiveness now we're seeing something happening very similar in the line of, of judgment judgment is moving away from collective judgment we're changing from generational judgment and we're starting to move to specific points in time. Mm. And so, and, and this is what Ezekiel, when he's talking about the, you know, the sour grapes won't set the, the sun's teeth on edge. And this is where we're getting to, but God's having to really break through these mindsets that were so common in the ancient Near East that the previous, the sins of the previous generation were going to be paid for by the next generation or the faith of the previous generation were going to be rewarded the next generation was going to get rewarded for it. You're right. So um, that that's changing here. And so as we're moving through that, we're going to see how this plays out within the judges themselves and in the lives of the judges. So, um, so we, we, like we said, moving into chapter three, continuation of chapter two. Okay. And, um, so we're still wrapping up the introduction still, still, still out. Uh, wrapping up, um, but we're almost done. I promise. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not complaining. I'm just l- making sure I knew where we were. Right. So God left the the nations in, in verses one through six. He's he's telling why he's leaving the Canaanites there. It's not just as judgments. He he's using this as part of the redempt, redemptive bottle. He he is teaching them how to fight. He's using it to test Israel. You know, it's one thing to be faithful. And to do what's right when you're in a culture where that's normal and where it's acceptable. I, you know, you and I, we grew up in a very Christian home, a very Christian community. Um, it, it was easier to obey than disobey. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. We would have had to have gone out of our way to do some of the traditional teenage rebellion. Right. And just, just due to the culture that we lived in. And so now God's saying, hey, you, know, you had the chance to have this culture. Mm-hmm. A culture that was that was saturated by my presence. You rejected it. Now, with the Canaanites here, and here's what's going to happen. You're if you're going to follow me, it's going to be harder. 
how mm-hmm. how how will how much are you willing to fight for it? How hard will you fight for it? Right. So, um, but this is the first generation out of Exodus that that had not, you know, they had not fought in the desert. They hadn't seen the plagues. They hadn't crossed the Red Sea. And this is the generation that's been born in Canaan. And we got to remember, you know, Judges is covering about 234 years to 480, depending on your dates. Mm-hmm. So we don't know how many generations. It could be up to six that all that this covers. And, you know, I don't know what our family was doing six generations ago. <laughs> I, mean, I have no idea. Yeah. I could give you like can... four, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I think we can get four, uh, in, but that's still very broad strokes. Right. I mean, we know roughly where they were living and some stories about uh, chicken coops and <laughs> different stuff Don't like that. Don't tell that on air. <laughs> and um, that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and that's, that's the thing. I mean, they're having to, to, I mean, we live in the age of the computer and documentation, the printing press at least. Mm-hmm. And so all of this would have been oral history. Um, and yeah, I, mean, I, I do wonder about that. Okay. So it is going to be like, you know, so we, right now we have so much information that's mm-hmm. getting archived mm-hmm. and I wonder what it's going to look like in the next generation. And then one after that, when you can go where you can find like, people's old abandoned Facebook accounts. And, <laughs> you know, I just want to know, is that going to be a thing? Yeah. Is that where, anyone going to care? Like, <laughs> my great, great grandchild can go see the, the stupid things I used to post about politics, you know, <laughs> just stuff like that. And actually be able to make a judgment on whether you're right or wrong it, through it, the lens of history. <laughs> I know. It just, yeah, that stuff just, it's really bizarre to me to think about that. It's well, and I think we forget that, you know, I didn't have Facebook when my kids were little. How no. many how many pictures of my grandbaby do I have? Oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah. So the, much. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I probably take seven or eight photos of my girls every other day. Right. You know, I, it's just because the phone's right there. And then how often do we actually look at them? Almost never, but you know. And then we whereas we were growing up, I mean like twice a year we got a picture yeah. taken. <laughs> yeah. You might catch a flash of us in the background. <laughs> yeah, and you know one ever knew. Yeah. <laughs> So, but I, so, yeah, so they're having th- this people, the, these generations, they're not the ones who witnessed the mighty mir- miracles. They're having to come to faith in a different way than their, their parents and grandparents came to faith. Um, so practically, this is teaching them to have faith. It's also teaching them to fight wars, how to be good warriors, how to defend a nation. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of Judges is when we get our, our monarchy is going to be established. Right. And so if you have a kingdom, an established kingdom, you have to be able to defend that kingdom. Mm-hmm. Theologically, it's also posing the question, can you, do you have faith? Can you believe that the mighty things God did in the past are things that he's still capable of now? Will he do now what he did then? Right. And, and, you know, and I, when I was thinking about that, I had to ask myself that question. Do I believe that can it, on a personal level today, can I look at the miracles of the Bible and go, the God who did those things then is still perfectly capable of doing these things now. Mm-hmm. That's a hard question to answer. I mean, I, I get it intellectually, but do I feel it? Right. You know, that that's, I, I don't think we, I don't think we connect with God that way. 
um, you know, we I think most of us haven't seen fire on the mountain and the cloud in the desert, and we we just haven't had that experience. I, I definitely have not. Well, I've I've seen a fire on a mountain, but not that <laughs> fire on the mountain. And right. So sorry. <laughs> yeah. So and, and and you know I I've seen God do some crazy supernatural things, and but that's a whole other show. So I. Sure. But nothing to the magnitude of the Old Testament. So as we move into verse three, we have a list of uh, nations that were left in Canaan, and we have the five lords of the of the Philistines. Mm-hmm. This is the first mention of the Philistines. Most of us know the Philistines from David and Goliath. Yep, yep David and Goliath. Yeah. Uh, this is the first time we come to to hear of them. Um, they're not native to Canaan. They they are um, outsiders. They're they're sometimes referred to as the Sea People. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're descendants of. Uh, Kelushin, Kelushim, sorry, I can't read my own handwriting, hmm. uh, who uh, ultimately from Ham is where they, their, their first ancestor major was, you know, Noah and then Ham from the Noah's Ark. Okay. Uh, Jeremiah traces them to uh, Crete and Cyprus, and that's Jeremiah 47 is the, the chapter of that. Now, we do have a friend right now who uh, is on a dig in Cyprus. And mm-hmm. she's going to come back and we're going to talk some more about the Philistines and their history. Because uh, what it's looking like right now is that the Philistines were uh, originally from Manoa. And uh, this from is... From where? Manoa. Manoa. Okay. Manoa, yeah. And so this is where we get the, the, the labyrinth story and uh, the centaur and there's... Gotcha, yeah. And... That culture seems to have influenced a lot of Mesopotamian cultures that we associate well with even Sodom and Gomorrah. Sure. And so, uh, very interesting uh, background on the Philistines there. The Numbers twenty four twenty four might actually be a prophecy of the Philistines' arrival uh, that they were they were coming uh, to Canaanite. Now, a Canaanite to Canaan. Um, let me look that up right quick. What was it? Numbers twenty four twenty four. It says, uh, "Also shall we live when God does this? But the ships shall come from Kittim, shall afflict Asher and Eber, and he shall come to other, he too shall come to utter destruction." So this is one of uh, Balaam's oracles, which Balaam's oracles were actually one of the older. Parts of the Bible right there with the Song of Deborah. Uh, we can trace that back. Now, historically, we know that the Philistines did come somewhere from the north, that they tried to invade uh, Egypt, and that Ramesses III, about 1190, was able to keep them from invading Egypt and actually had them settled on the coast of southern Canaan. And, um, and eventually, the Philistines were able to push the Egyptians completely out of that area. So this is the reason why when we go forward with the battles, Israel isn't fighting Egypt, they're fighting Philistines. Okay. So they had five major cities known as the Pentapolis. And, um, well, that would make sense. Yeah, it, it doesn't. It? Yeah. So uh, they are mentioned by name in Jeremiah 47 and Numbers 24. So we have these, these, um, we start to see the convergence of history and the Bible once again. Mm-hmm. I love this because it's not a forced convergence. And um, the main thing is they're completely distinct from the other Canaanites. 
uh, and Amos 9, 7 specifically says God brought the Philistines to uh, Canaan at this time for this purpose. Okay. And Amos 9 kind of acts as a commentary on Judges, and it's really good to read in concert with Judges. Okay. So, um, now why did I give you all this information? That's a great question. Isn't it? Well, one, because you should just like having the information. No, uh, but also what it does, it gives us some dating. Because if Ramesses III pushes them out of Egypt in 1190, we know that what happens after this uh, from chapters 2 and onward have to happen after 1190. Uh, what happened before in chapters 1 probably happened before this. So we do have some loose dating. Um, we, but again, how big of a window have we got? We aren't certain. And I'm sure there's actually somebody in there who's taking all of these great new archaeological information <laughs> to, to give us more precise date. And maybe Becca will have something on that. You know, no Let's pressure, see. Becca. Yeah. <laughs> so in addition to the Philistines, we have the Canaanites and the Sidians, uh, or this is also the Phoenicians is the other name for them. Uh, I think most of us are familiar with the Phoenicians. They were the, the sailors of the ancient world, known for the great um, shipmaking skills. And we have the, the Hittites. And um, we, we kind of lose a lot of the individual names. You know, when, when Genesis 15, we were talking about the Perizzites and the Amorites, and the, we start to lose the individual names of the Canaanite people, and they began to be viewed as a group at this point. Right. So we, you know, we, we still needed them to have individual names whenever they were supposed to be utterly destroyed. Now that they're going to be left there and they're actually going to continue to flourish alongside Israel, mm -hmm. they're, they're Canaanites. We, we don't need the individual name groups because it's not as important. Uh, the Phoenicians are, are still kept as distinct. Uh, the Philistines and the Hittites, of course, also uh, distinct. But the Philistines, um, I'm sorry, the Hittites were one of the few people that still maintained an identity, uh, an identity who were supposed to be completely destroyed. Right. They're, they're, they're one of the few, and it's, and I would love to actually do some more research into their identity because we do know that Hittites do join with Israel in different things. I mean, we have Uriah the Hittite. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bathsheba, probably also a Hittite, included sure. in the lineage of Christ. So once again, that utter destruction was reserved for only those who would not repent and those who would not join with the covenant community. Right. And so we see that um, uh, we see that played out. And you know, and everybody's like, "Well, why? Why are you picking on the Hittites?" Well, it's because. Here and in Joshua, they're, they're associated with Mount Hermon and with Arba. Sure. And Arba's where the Anakim lived. So we're talking mm -hmm. about the Rephaim. We're talking about the Nephilim. We're talking about those, those watchers. Um, Hermon, Hermon, Mount Hermon, that's the mountain that the um, fallen angels of Genesis 6, according to the book of Enoch, were imprisoned under. Right. And so this is where Jesus and Peter go and they have the discussion and Jesus says, you know, who, who do you say that I am? And, and they have the, upon this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell. Well, that base of Hermon was known as the gates of hell. So we, we have all of this information that tells us that the Hittites 
had been associated with this this force of evil okay that according to most second temple jews so these are the jews that lived in in jesus day these they these jews believed of the can't even talk these jews believed in three distinct events that caused the Proliferation of, of the of, proliferation, of, proliferation of, of evil. evil. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> uh, but and one of them being the fall in the garden again, uh, Genesis six, the, the the watchers, and then the Tower of Babel. And so the Hittites were associated with that. And another real quick little tie there because the Hittites were they're the ones with the iron chariots. They're the ones with uh, the ability to to work with metals far ahead of other cultures. Which makes sense if you give any credence to Enoch, because one of the things that the Watchers taught mm-hmm. humanity was how to make weapons of war. Interesting. So there's that that connection. I hadn't put that tie together, but mm-hmm. yeah, I see. I see where you're going there. Yeah. So you know, circumstantial evidence. Uh, I don't know if we're going to have all of the information to prove or disprove, but uh, it's still an interesting uh, subject to, to to think about. Sure. So. All right, so verse four, um, yeah, back to that testing idea and the idea that this gives them an objective measurement, a way to measure what their obedience level is, because it's specifically to test to see if they're going to obey the Lord's command to Moses. Mm-hmm. So here's your level of obedience. I, I said this, are you going to do it? Um, this isn't about arbitrary rules or anything like this, how you feel on that day. Are you willing to do what I specifically told you to do? Right. So we, we have that. Um, and, you know, they're living with the Canaanites. They're intermarrying with the Canaanites. Mm-hmm. They're serving their gods. They're, they're so comfortable. And this is the reason why God is going to bring in outside invaders to oppress the people. The Canaanites and the, the Israelites are friends at this point. Right. And now we've got to have the Philistines come in. We could have the Hittites come in. We have to have, um, we have the Hurrians come in and, and they're going to oppress the people because the Canaanites can't do it. The, the, the Israelites have become so assimilated into their culture that, um, they provide the testing grounds, mm-hmm. but they aren't really a good method of bringing discipline. Right. So um, it, it, to demonstrate how comfortable they were, Gideon has a Canaanite wife. Gilead, the father of uh, Jepheth, the, one of the judges, has a Canaanite prostitute who has his son. Mm-hmm. Uh, Samson has a Philistine wife and prostitutes. They... As a matter of fact, when um, Gideon, I'm sorry, when Samson goes against the Philistines, the tribe of Judah gets upset at him for disturbing the status quo. Right. right. You know, so everybody's getting along and God's actually having to bring people in to make sure that his purposes are being carried out. Right. Right. And so that that concludes the introduction. Okay. (laughs) And really the book could have ended right there because... What other information do you need? I, I mean, this is, yes, this is exactly what's going to happen. Right. And it just over and over, but we're just going to look at specific events from this point out. And the author's going to say, see, told you. 
See, I told you. <laughs> so, um, it, it, and it's it's a shocking book. From here on out, it, it is shocking. It's intentionally shocking and disturbing. Right. It wants you to to be kind of an eyewitness to the level of depravity within the nation. And like we said before, at the end, there's just no good or great judge in any of this. And this is the reason why the, the word judge is never applied to an individual. Only God has the title of, of judge. Okay. So. Well, let's, let's, um, so what's the first one we have? Let's, let's just go and see how far we can get here. Okay. So we're with, uh, verses seven through 11. And this is Othniel. This is Caleb's nephew. We've first met him in chapter one with his daughter, uh, with his wife, uh, who Caleb gave the springs to. And Othniel is, I mean, he's the perfect judge. We, we, already ha- we know he's a great warrior. Mm-hmm. We know that he comes from a good family. Yeah. He's got a, he's got a family uh, uh, his, of his own. And and he's got a pretty decent uh, size um, estate. Yeah. So yes, we like him from the get go, uh, and it, it's there's no sales pitch that has to be done for him in the, in the eyes of the people, and he rises up at a time when let's see what the Bible says here. Uh, it says in the uh, seven and the people uh, the people did evil mm-hmm. in the sight of the Lord. And they forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Asherah, mm-hmm. which is, again... What we re- just went recapping. over? We, we literally just went over this. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he sold them into the hands of... <laughs> we just talked about that. <laughs> uh, into the hand of Kush, Kushan Rishathame. Rish, Rishathame. Rishathame. Kushan, Kushan Rishathame. Okay. Yeah. Uh, king of Mesopotamia. I got Mesopotamia, though. Uh, <laughs> And the mm-hmm. people served is uh, the people of Israel served Kushan uh, Rishathaim for eight years. But when the Lord and uh, uh, but when the people of Israel cried out, the Lord uh, to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer, and the people of Israel saved uh, for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother. So that's the that's the setup. Okay. So um, very quickly they forgot. This is the first generation born in Canaan, like we were just talking about. Um, God sells them, just like we were talking about. And Kushan uh, Reshethim, we have no idea who he is. We can't find any other um, historical record of him. And the title tells us, I mean, we can tell from the language of the title that he's um, maybe from Syria. Uh-huh. Um, and that he he lives between the rivers is pretty much what we can can say. So he's not a Canaanite, he's not a Palis, uh, Palestinian, not a Philistine, not a Hittite. He's an outside invader who managed to conquer all of Canaan. Hmm. And you know, basically, this is the Bible's way of saying, "Don't mess with this dude." Okay. He he he's big, he's bad, he's ugly, and not only can he conquer Canaan, he can maintain control for eight years. Um, his name it, it's interesting because it basically means Kushan of double wickedness. <laughs> yeah, this guy is so bad that he's not just wicked. Um, but that's really all we know about him. Um, you know, and the people, they're, they're crying out to God, and he, he raises up a deliverer. Uh, 
again, this is not a cry of repentance. This is a cry of affliction. We're, we're hurting. We need help. And just like Exodus 2, God's going to respond. Um, and this is a deliverer. Othniel, Othniel is, is a deliverer. He's not a ruler. Um, he is, um, the word there for deliverer is the same as the root for the name Joshua or Jesus, it, it, Savior. And in Judges, we're going to have 12 deliverers and seven rulers. And what's kind of interesting on that is each one is kind of aligned with a different month. Okay. And so each one has a different season that they are represented. And then you get into the, the Hebrew Zodiac and all of that, which I didn't take time to, to study because that's a whole other can of worms. And maybe in a wrap up, we'll do something so, with maybe, that. Yeah. It's like, I don't even begin to feel qualified to talk about that. And it's one of those, that's one of those you have to be really careful with. Yeah. Because you, you can go way off the deep end, but we, we begin with Othniel and he, even though he is from the tribe of Judah, he's there with, by adoption, just like Caleb was. He, he's a Kenite. He's an outsider who delivers from outsiders. And he's aligned with the first month of the year. And then it continues on through Dan, who's aligned with the last month of the year. Um, so one of the things that's very clear is that the spirit of the Lord comes upon him. This is not something that he decided to do in and of his own power or of his own volition uh, that he thinks he can succeed. But God's power actually comes upon him. This is the Holy Spirit. Sure. For everyone who wants to go, oh, the Holy Spirit didn't show up until the New Testament. And no, you're... I don't get how you get there. I know I said that before, but I don't get how you get there if you're reading the Old Testament. It's our bias. Yeah. You know, it, it's it, it's us reading with our lens that we like. I don't like who likes that lens. Who likes the lens for which the Holy Spirit is inactive through a large portion of creation? Who likes that lens? Well, I think if you think about it objectively, you don't like it. But I don't think we think about it. I, we have been so conditioned not to ask questions about scripture. We, we've been told that you don't think critically about the Bible because you're questioning God and thinking critically about God. And critical means you're criticizing. Well, okay. And well, here's the thing. Question. Okay. First off, it's not bad to question. Because one of the things like <laughs> Jesus says, you know, it, you, you have to be like a child mm-hmm. in, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And what have you ever been around a four, five, or six year old? What do they ask? Eight year old on a two and a half hour car ride? What do they ask? (laughs) Why? Why? I mean, they're just full of questions. And and that's not a bad thing, but I think, I do think we we conflate questioning questions with disrespect far too often. But Mm -hmm. I just, I I, I think it kind of plays into this. The church really kind of has, I mean, for lack of a better term, kind of a, well, a myopic and narcissistic view <laughs> that somehow the world the, the the world didn't begin until the church began. Right. And we've got all these just stupid and again anti-Semitic ideas about how God mm-hmm. works and that the Holy Spirit didn't work with the nation of Israel. Yeah. And that I don't know. It just it, drives me nuts. I'm sorry. I I that one, it's like, where does that even come from to me? It, well, it, it's, yeah, it, it's our own sense of importance. And, you know, that's, I, I think anytime we start thinking we're important, we need to stop and reevaluate what we're saying about God and the rest of the world. Right. So, 
But in, in this point, you know, the spirit of the Lord, you know, we already know Athnael, he, he's a great warrior, mm-hmm. but even what he had to accomplish, what he needed to get done, he wasn't able to do in his own power. Right. And that he, he needed that, that strength, the wisdom, the, all the things that come with being filled with the Holy Spirit in order to, to fulfill his role. And he's going to, to judge Israel. Mm-hmm. Now, when I say that, like I said, the, the title judge is never applied to anyone. Now, and that's what we need to make the old distinction right here. He judged Israel. Israel. He's doing the action. Mm-hmm. He is, does not have the title. Um, now, it is interesting that Hebrew sources say that in his judging Israel that he taught Torah. And that was, the, um, that was his victory in, in Israel was that he actually taught Torah because there's not really any details on his battle. Right. We, we don't know what it looks like. And, and it's not important. At this point, we don't care. The, the important thing is he wins because God is on his side, which is exactly what God had promised to the people through all of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and up through the first chapter of, Ju- of Judges itself, you're going to win because God's on your side. And when he wins, they have 40 years of peace. Mm-hmm. And now every period of peace in Judges is going to be a multiple of 20. But that's... No. Well, go ahead. Finish uh, that. Well, it, it's just... Uh, there's 20 is kind of an interesting number to, to use because it really is about... Uh, a lot of times two is the number of witness. When you put 10 with it, then it becomes a complete witness. Okay. So the, the idea that God would have this peace going on for 20 years gives us a, a true firm witness mm-hmm. that God has completely judged the nation at that time. Gotcha. And so e- each period of oppression is going to be for that specific generation or that specific geographic area's own problems and, and sins and that this isn't something based on others, you know, whether it's previous generations or surrounding communities, it really is about that, those people in that mm-hmm. moment, in that place. Yeah, it's, uh, something real quick. I just happened to notice because we start out when you're with Othniel, he's the one that gets like almost no critique. Yeah. Yeah. He, but he, he's, he's a minor note in his own story. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but as we progress, <laughs> as the story, I mean, I mean, if you look I at see it, where you're going. As, as you progress, as the story focuses more and more on the judge and what they did, mm-hmm. it's it's like <laughs> the, it's the focus shifts off of God. Yeah, and so I, I think that's kind of interesting. I think, of course, you know that that's yeah, that's just you know I, I know it's not a a fast secure rule, but right. the more details you get about the person, the less you have a you know the less you have focus on God. Now again, you know, now uh, what's her name? Deborah has you know almost two chapters, um, but <laughs> and there's a reason for that. <laughs> but you know, it, well, part of it is because she's got a really long song, song. Mm-hmm. Uh, in here. But you know, it's so like I said, it's not a hard and fast rule. But I do think that's kind of interesting um, when you kind of start looking at those things. And and I was because I was having a I was having a conversation with my brother-in-law, who's actually he's a missionary in Cameroon, Africa, and. Um, I don't know if I should say that on the air, but anyway, but he's a missionary in Africa <laughs> and, and he, um, I don't know if his location, his, I mean, he tells people where he is, so I don't think it's a secret location. <laughs> um, but anyway, we were talking about, he was talking about how over there, there's a lot of, a lot of 
quote gospel being preached in the name of like religiosity or prosperity or mm-hmm. you know a lot of stuff we see here it it, it gets exported mm-hmm. you know and he was talking about the big deal that like the big thing in the baptist a lot of the baptist missionaries and the churches they've planted there right now a lot of their their focus and this is not to just rail on the baptist this is to talk about this particular teaching is that a lot of their focus right now is so many of the missionaries missionaries talking about how they they want to be able to to leave a legacy and and I'm like, why? Right. I mean, other other than other than Jesus, what else do we need to leave with people? Right. I mean, Jesus and and love your neighbor. You know, that's it. But a legacy, I don't care. That's a legacy, a good study, maybe. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> but the, but you see what I'm saying? There's there's like this this idea. It's like the more we focus on on what name are we going to leave behind, mm-hmm. then other than you know. Than God, well, and then this, we're getting off track. Are, and are, are we pointing people back to God or to our own ability and our own systematic and our own, you know our own interpretation? And you know, you and I have talked about this before. It's a lot of times within the the modern church, it's almost like it's more important that you follow the right systematic and have the mm-hmm. right name of the whatever you know founder of whichever denomination, uh, you know, have that title. Than yeah. it is to be a Christian. Yeah. And, well. It, well. And and well. And like uh, when we had uh, Justin Westmoreland on, mm-hmm. he was talking about you know he read all these books on church planning and there's a lot of them that are very much like do these five steps and you'll have a hundred thousand people or yeah. you know I don't we're right well but, and and that's why I, I think when we're looking at judges where that that fits into this discussion is none of these judges do things the same way hmm. it, it's all very unique and. And it is really tailored, not for this person's strengths a lot of times. Othniel is probably one of the few, mm-hmm. but most of the time it's aimed at their weakness. And and sometimes you, you they're they're having to do some stuff that nobody wants to do. Right. And we're we're gonna get into that story uh, before too long. <laughs> I don't think we're gonna have time to do all of uh, Ehud. Yeah, that um, one gets pretty involved because <laughs> that's. I mean, I'm sure there's a ton of stuff we can talk about with that one. But yeah, we're going to talk about how sometimes doing the right thing means getting dirty, getting yeah, <laughs> going through some some crap. Yeah, <laughs> uh, literally, literally in the next story. So uh, yeah, so sometimes we have to do things that that don't seem glamorous. And yes, <laughs> and I, I think we see that with, with the judges. There's very very little glamour with their stories. Right, and. And we really don't get to glamour until we get to David um, and Solomon. And Solomon, I mean, he glams it all up. So, yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I guess that's one way you could describe him. It's, uh, it's the golden age of Israel. I know. I mean. it's, it's so funny. I'm just, I'm now, now, now I've got like, uh, I'm, have you seen, there's the artist, uh, there's probably, there's, I'll, I'll, there's an artist depiction of, of Solomon's courts and, and now I have like a disco ball in it like, <laughs> in my mind. So I'm going to have to erase that. Erase that. Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> this is what we do here. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, we're, uh, we're, is there anything else you had on, uh, I'm good. <laughs> So, um, Othniel focuses on God. You get stuff done, right? Yeah, pretty much. You know, and it's really funny though. Okay. I guess I do have something. He is, there's so little to say about him, but he's one of the ones who got it right. Uh, And 
that's the teaching point right there is that and i guess that's what you were saying that's earlier, kind of what i was saying yeah yeah and because there's so little to say about him there's so little to critique about him yeah and so you know that's another reason to you know, keep your mouth shut yeah it's like a <laughs> don't start a podcast <laughs> yeah well what are we doing here so anyway everyone, before we derail <laughs> before we get even farther off the tracks everyone thank you so much for joining us well, we hope you enjoyed it. Um, this very lighthearted and reverent book at look at one of the most uh, gruesome books of the Bible. Um, but we'll be back next time with Ehud and uh, all the stuff that comes along with that story. Yeah, um, yeah. So until next time, hit us up on RavenCreeksc.com, uh, where you can be part of the conversation. You can either comment on the episode page. Um, share that with your friends. Uh, be sure to rate and review us in your favorite podcast app. Mm-hmm. Um, while you are at the uh, RavenCreekSC.com, you can click on the, if you find the support link, you can either go to Patreon.com or you can buy some cool uh, merchandise from our shop um, and kind of support us passively by wearing our logo around. Anyway, uh, <laughs> there's that. Um, and to be part of the conversation, uh, hit us up on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raven Creek SC. And in the meantime, we'll be looking forward to hearing from you. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash Raven Creek SC. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.